I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff, and I'm taking your badge this week, Sheriff, and I'm not going to give it back. And I'm Matt Bernico. I've also done a thing to the Sheriff, and I can't think of it, though. Um, <laughs> well, welcome to The Magnificast. Here we are. <laughs> uh, that's right. <clears throat> this week on The Magnificast, if you haven't already guessed, we are taking a deep dive into the abolition of police and what it is that leftists and Christians might have to say about it. As a guide to get the general shape of the argument for abolishing the police, we read, like everybody else, Alex Vitale's book, The End of Policing. Um, it's a book that Verso was giving out as a free ebook a little while back, so it just got downloaded and shared all over the place. And Alex Vitale has been doing a lot of interviews, and you can find him talking about it a lot. The big idea in this episode, though, is not just to talk about that book, but to try to think about why Christians might be able to enter into this conversation and how we might do that as Christians on the left, inspired by Marxism and all the rest of that stuff. So we're going to get to all that. We're going to figure out why Christians shouldn't like police, or at least should want to get rid of them. Uh, but before we do that, Matt, can I turn it over to you to talk about what we've done to our Patreon? Of course. Yes. Thank you. Um, so in the for the first time in forever, we've updated our Patreon. <laughs> We've added a new tier. We've added new rewards. You're gonna love them. They're fantastic. Um, you gotta you gotta check them out. The most notable thing is that uh, we have made a new tier in our Patreon for ten dollars, which I think is a lot, <laughs> and uh, maybe you do too. And if you subscribe and support us at that level, you get the world's only Benjamin Lay sticker. It doesn't exist anywhere else because why would it? <laughs> um, if you want if you want this cool sticker of everyone's uh, favorite and least known. Um, just abolitionist this is where you get it on our patreon and that's it uh it's cool we really appreciate everyone that gives us money on patreon yeah. and supports us there it makes this project uh the magnificast just work in general and uh i don't know i don't know if we would have been if we would have done in this for so long had people not supported us like they have so we really appreciate you and um yeah so thanks so th thanks for doing it and also you can give us more money if you want to there i'll, I'll just say it <laughs> it's a good thing to say every once in a while you have to say it uh we stopped numbering the episodes who knows what number we're on but you know it's probably been too long since we've uh made a shameless uh, ask for money um one more you don't have to give us money plug. you can also just give us like a nice review on itunes that's also just as good as money um it doesn't convert very well but uh we appreciate that just <laughs> yeah the same too. i always take those reviews to the bank and the banker will never roll them for me uh, unfortunately damn that's um, messed up 
Got to go to New Bank. Get to the podcast bank. That's right. Uh, another shameless plug is that I'm teaching a class at the Institute for Christian Studies. If you've listened to this podcast for a while, you might know that I've taught a bunch of other classes. They're all online, and this one is going to be an intensive uh, for six weeks. And it is on Christianity and prison abolition. And also I've added a, a class at the end on police abolition, which hasn't been in the previous iteration of this course that I taught in January. Um, I'm really excited to teach it in these conditions, especially. I think there's just a lot of people talking about it. And if you want to talk about it with other folks who are committed to reading and thinking and, and discussing a lot of ideas that are swirling around about abolition and Christianity, this is a good opportunity to do it. If you are interested, you can email our registrar, Elizabeth, at academic-registrar, R-E-G-I-S-T-R-A-R, at icscanada.edu, and she will give you all the information you could ever want about this class. I was just thinking about how much I missed grad school the other day, so maybe I'll sign up and I can just be <laughs> the, uh, I'll be the class clown. I'll be the guy that's gonna, I'm gonna put thumbtacks on your chair. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and really prank you. Yeah, that sounds good. Well, uh, my partner Emily might also take the class, so this could be quite a bizarre. Oh my uh, gosh! Situation. We have to get all of your your closest friends and family to get into this class. Yeah, yeah. I should be... email my mom, see what she's up to. Uh, we'll just see how it goes. This is the ultimate prank: is to get <laughs> to get everyone in this class and make you be our teacher. Oh no! What a disaster. <laughs> um, well, we'll see. Uh, all right, let's move on to uh, the actual podcast. Uh, like I said, we're going to talk about the end of policing. Let me introduce that. And then once we talk through that book a little bit, we'll get to some of the, the kind of Christian angles or, or ways we could think about this um, in theological terms or whatever. All right. Uh, so Vitaly's book is really interesting for a lot of reasons. Probably one of the best is that it is extremely useful, which is not something you can say about every book that comes out on the left. Uh, it has a lot of um, really like practical information and applied information. And every chapter is broken up into sections that conceptualize the problem with police in general, the problem with reforms and what alternatives there might be. And you can see info on police in schools, for example, or uh, what does policing have to do with gender, all kinds of stuff that, that comes out in the text that's really great. And one thing that I think I appreciate most is that Vitaly has clearly apprenticed himself to a wider discourse of abolition with people like Angela Davis and Ruth Wilson Gilmore and Naomi Murakawa and all these other extremely gifted scholars. So if you're kind of looking for like a way into that universe of discourse, um, Vitaly's is at least one sort of entry point into the police side of the conversation that will uh, introduce you to a lot of other people as well. So it's a good book is what I'm trying to say. It is a good book. Uh, it just starts off just drawing out the big question about police, right? That people think that um, that police are out here uh, to protect you, to protect your private property, you know, to make sure that our society does not crumble into chaos. But Alex Vitali is here to tell you, what if police are bad? <laughs> and you haven't thought about that part. Maybe you, <laughs> maybe you don't know about this one, but maybe they're bad. And um, the the book turns really quickly to just like, what if we rethought the whole idea of police and society? Or what if we rethought society in, in, uh, in regards to justice and um, rather than, you know, uh, carcerality and, uh, and, uh, and, and revenge and um, punishment, right? What if we thought about things all different, all upside down? 
Um, so uh, that's what we do. <laughs> that's what he does in the book. <laughs> and uh, like, like I said, it's a it's a useful book, uh, and it really kind of gives you all of the tools you need to, I think, understand these articles, and then also. Yeah, I mean, kind of rehearse thinking about them. I, I don't know if that's the right word, but that's how I always, I, in my brain, I'm always arguing with somebody, some kind of made up interlocutor. And this book has been really helpful because it kind of gives you these uh, these cool different sides of the argument. Like, you know, he'll present, um, he'll present like step one, this is what the police are actually like. And then step two, this is what people who think they need to be reformed, you know, this is what police should do according to like this reformist type of approach. And then step three, there's always a section called alternatives in each chapter where it's like, this is what we should really do instead. But um, before we get to any of that stuff, let me just kind of um, read a quote here from Alex Vitali, and um, we can start kind of seeing what he thinks the problem with police are writ large. Uh, so Vitali writes, more than anything, however, what we really need is to rethink the role of police in society. The origins and function of the police are intimately tied to the management of inequalities of race and class. The suppression of workers and the tight surveillance and micromanagement of black and brown lives have always been at the center of policing. A kinder, gentler, and more diverse war on the poor is still a war on the poor. So this is good. This is kind of drawing out that big question that I mentioned before, right? Like, if you've never really questioned the idea of police as sort of just a agent of control in society, this is a good place to start doing it, that um, police are there as, as managers of inequality of race and class. They're, they're people who are um, going to ensure the status quo remains just so. And, um, you know, you might think that's like just something that you have to deal with, but um, and, and maybe police could be reformed or whatever, but uh, even a reformed police officer, a reformed police force, a reformed sense of justice is still uh, at its best, uh, the, the management of um, inequalities. And that's bad. That's what you don't <laughs> want. So that's what you're going to get in this book. Someone that's going to rethink all those things. Yeah, that's you. right. Um, we'll talk in a minute, I think, about the kind of liberal understanding of police or or how police function in liberal imaginations about society and, and what police do. That is a really great piece of the second chapter of the text. But I think it probably bears maybe drawing out in broad, broad strokes, like why police are problematic and why reform isn't enough uh, in the first place. I mean, if you listen to our episode last week with Micah Herskind, hopefully you've you've kind of at least, uh, you know, you know where to find this kind of stuff. <laughs> you've heard it before already, and that's very good. Um, but uh, it's it's always good to kind of uh, figure that out. So, you know, people will liberals in particular will say uh, the problem with police is you've got um, sure like corruption in the system. Maybe it's even very deep. Maybe it's a uh, toxic and, you know, it's, it's incredibly bad. It's not that liberals sort of think that police are necessarily always good. Um, but perhaps what we should really do is kind of rethink the role for the police or reimagine the police. That's one way that people sometimes talk about it. Uh, abolitionists are saying that we don't, we shouldn't have police at all, which is, a big thing to say right away off the bat, but it's not a utopic dream. Um, there are some real considerations to be made about what we think police do, what they in fact do. Um, the one that people often talk about is police responding to things like mental health crises, right? Um, that's where a lot of shootings and killings happen. Um, police show up because somebody's having a really hard time. They don't know what to do and they panic and they kill somebody. Um, and police abolitionists will say, 
well, why would we be sending an armed police officer to a situation like this in the first place when we could be sending someone who is a trained healthcare professional who knows how to de-escalate a situation, who has experience with people who are having mental health crises, etc., and who understand that, you know, this is a, a person who needs help, not a person who needs to be threatened or yelled at or, or whatever. Um, so all that to say... Uh, the idea that the police need to be abolished is one that sounds pretty wild if you've never heard of it. Um, but don't let anybody tell you that there is no actual way of thinking about this or no real steps to be taken. Uh, that's exactly what Vitaly and so many other people are really trying to kind of lay out. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good way to kind of contextualize the book. You know, so you mentioned too, right? right like saying abolish the police right off the bat is like a really like a big step. It's like a big thing just to say without any contextualization or without any kind of different deeper reading and i think that's something else that the that vitaly's book is really good about is kind of explaining just like i don't know like why people are so um like i guess like addicted to policing as as a form of justice and um there's a lot going on especially like you know there's some popular culture critiques to be made uh with television for sure uh, citations needed did a really good episode about this not too long ago about propaganda on tv and i think that's great um, but like, uh, you know, it's just like, uh, just like you said, right? Like police end up being the, the catch-all, the catch-all solution to every single problem in our society. And it is a woefully inadequate solution, um, as Vitaly lays out when it comes to mental health or when it comes to school or when it comes to any, anything at all, right? Police are responding in this way that is completely <laughs> bad. <laughs> they don't, they're not trained to be health professionals. They're not trained to be like mentors to children they're not trained to to know how to do these things and it's like actually i think super bizarre when you kind of explicate it that way because why would you expect right. them to <laughs> right why would you expect these like guys who get uh, you know these these guys and girls who get um very little training whatsoever to go out and like know how to solve a complex problem that is like a mental health crisis or something like it just seems so weird but that's what we do and that's what we think works and uh, yeah, I mean, Vitaly does a good job just kind of explaining why that's a bonkers <laughs> thing to think. Yeah, for sure. Um, so there's a lot of sort of functional arguments in this text that are really good. Um, another thing that comes out as well is a, a kind of ideological argument or, you know, breaking the spell of how we think about police. And I'll just pull out one because I think this is a, a passage that Christians might in particular find interesting as we think about these kind of issues in our own tradition. Um so here's something that Vitaly says to kind of lay out the ideological spell, if you will, of policing. Uh, this is still in chapter one, but he says, part of the problem is that our politicians, media, and criminal justice institutions too often equate justice with revenge. Popular culture is suffused with revenge fantasies in which the aggrieved bring horrible retribution down on those who have hurt them. Often this involves a fantasy of those who have been placed on the margins taking aim at the powerful. It's a fantasy of empowerment through violence. Police and prisons have become have come to be our preferred tools for inflicting punishment. Our entire criminal justice system has become a gigantic revenge factory. Um, I think like a passage like this is so helpful because not only does it articulate something very important and troubling about uh, maybe the psyche of not only people in the United States, but people in Canada and people who consume, you know, that, that <laughs> the stuff that gets made in the media machine that is in the United States uh, but, uh, it also, I think, invites different ways of, um, interrogating how we've been formed or how we're, you know, being formed. 
the idea that our criminal justice system is a revenge factory, I think, is something that should strike Christians in particular as being not a good thing, right? <laughs> like, and not even abolitionist Christians necessarily. Like, surely uh, even conservative Christians will have some reasons to think that perhaps that is not a very uh, good way, or not only not only a not a good way to organize a society, but a thing that something like uh, Christianity would actually want you to oppose or would want you to uh, rethink at a really fundamental level. Um, and I think that is at least an, an opening for Christians to start finding their own way into police abolition is especially through these kind of ideological critiques, figuring out, well, how are um, police kind of encouraging us to think in ways that are pretty alien to the ways that we want to be formed by Christianity or something like that? And how can our faith provide some kind of alternative uh, self-understanding? Yeah, huh, that's a good way to put it. Um, well, okay, so you, you're hearing us talk a little bit about um, uh, police abolition, and you might be thinking, like, okay, so police have their own problems, but they can be reformed, right? And if not, what should we do? Um, and Vitaly tackles this question of, of reform really sufficiently in the book. Um, police abolition is a hard thing for people to think about. If they haven't read anything about it, or they just have no exposure to the idea. Um, but, like... Um, Police reform is an idea that I think is easier to get behind because like, you know, you can you, you can be a person and just observe that there are probably problems with the police, like there's problems with anything. Right. But uh, Vitaly kind of goes out of his way to make sure that you you that, that you don't think that <laughs> <laughs> he goes out of his way to make sure that uh, you that the idea of reform is like never going to be sufficient for addressing the problem of uh, police and the way it functions in society. Um, so here's a quote from Vitaly that kind of gets to what he's what he's after here. Any real agenda for police reform must replace police with empowered communities working to solve their own problems. Poor communities of color have suffered the consequences of high crime and disorder. It is their children who are being shot and robbed. They have also had to bear the brunt of aggressive, invasive, and humiliating policing. Policing will never be a just or effective tool for community empowerment, much less racial justice. Communities must directly confront the political, economic, and social arrangements that produce the vast gulfs between the races and the growing gaps between the haves and have-nots. We don't need empty police reforms. We need a robust democracy that gives people the capacity to demand their government and themselves real, non-punitive solutions to their problems. Okay, so this is good. This is, this is getting us on track to what Vitaly is trying to get us to think about. Um, reforms uh, and like you know more police training, all of that kind of stuff will never be good enough to actually confront the problems at hand, right? Um, police, when it comes down to it, are are there to sort of like address the symptoms of the problem poorly, and and um, reforming those police or making them not use chokeholds or making them not use tear gas is never going to solve the problem in itself, right? So um, what Vitaly does is something that is um, you know, pretty, pretty Marxist. If you think about it, um, you have to change the actual material conditions that people live in. You have to change the political, economic, and social arrangements that, that produce the situations, um, that are causing people to, to suffer and, and, um, are like, you know, the, the situations that police are applying themselves to. So instead of reforming those, those things that really would just, you know, be, uh, like he said earlier, a, a kinder and gentler, more diverse war on the poor, instead of doing that, um, we ought to address those needs uh, systemically first. And uh, yeah, I mean, obviously you can see the the reason that 
you know, um, Marxists would be interested in it. And also there's like a, a genealogy of Marxists who have been interested and have contributed a lot, like Angela Davis and others. Um, but yeah, this is a good place to start thinking about like what what uh, Vitaly has in mind about uh, the abolition of police. Yeah, um, I think that is also just a, a helpful way into uh, helping us figure things out um, in a way that looks at how abolition is a, a creative uh, project, not just a negative project. Um, and that's something abolitionists are always talking about, that, yeah, it's it's abolishing prisons or abolishing police, but to do that, it's actually the the production of some other kind of society where we don't have to think about these things in the same way or the kinds of problems that we assume we're addressing are actually addressed um, at a root level. Uh, maybe I'm, I guess I'm kind of thinking back to the episode we did on Christians and political economy, um, where what's really happening here is uh, in the same way that something like Marxism can help us ask, why are there poor people um, and why are there rich people? And, you know, we can kind of address it at a more structural level. Uh, here too, we can kind of say, well, why is there crime in the first place? Why are there people who are labeled criminals? Um, what does that actually mean? So it's just kind of one more way to dig below the the sort of moral injunction, which is good, that says, you know, police shouldn't just be killing people in the streets, uh, and then ask a, a, a deeper question of like, all right, how did police even get here in the first place? And like, what should we do different? Yep, that's a pretty good overview of the situation. Um, in the second chapter, uh, things take a historical turn, which is always the turn. We have to be careful of this turn in this podcast because, um, boy, do I love reading about history these days. That's the whole <laughs> thing. That's the thing I care about the most. Um, and OK, there there's a good approach to history when it comes to this. And there's a bad approach. Um, the good approach is to kind of find and trace back exactly uh, the the logics of policing and like, you know, how they work historically. And then the bad approach is to be like, gotcha, police are right. always bad or, or something. Right. <laughs> right. The point here is history for understanding, not history as a gotcha moment or, or something. So um, I, I think in the second chapter, though, he lays out exactly um, this this genealogy that helps us kind of understand why we're in the situation we are in today um, when it comes to uh, policing. Uh, Dean, do you want to talk about history a little bit? Yeah, for sure. Um so, like you said, uh, history not as a gotcha. Uh, it's not to say that police aren't always bad because um, police are bad as an institution. <laughs> but uh, the way that you can sort of make a responsible claim about that, I guess, is and and therefore also be able to deal with it is to figure out exactly how how we got here. And the origins of police, I think, are told in a really interesting way in this chapter because. Um, Vitaly kind of like bounces around these different historical moments and I won't go through all of them, but some of them are pretty obvious. Like uh, the police, as we know them today, have not always existed as an institution. Um, so it kind of forces you to ask, like, where did they come from? And uh, in the first sort of bit of the history telling, Vitaly explains that they come from a suppression of workers. Uh, and that's in a number of ways. And if you know a lot about like American labor history, you might think of even people like the Pinkertons or kind of hired guns who are supposed to be strike breakers or things like that. Um, that's sort of one one like river that feeds into the creation of police. Um, another that Vitaly draws out is uh, slave patrols and people who are trying explicitly to discipline black people in the United States. That's another very important river. And uh, uh, a sort of third river is this weird dialogue between the United States's uh, military efforts um, in its colonial expansions and abroad 
and then bringing those kind of military militarizing logics back home. So you can, of course, draw in uh, the genocide of indigenous peoples into that, and then as well as this kind of imperialist drive uh, to subjugate people elsewhere. So the, these are kind of like three big um, pieces that I think are historical uh, founding kind of moments that congeal into the institution of police as we know them today. So the way that that uh, can become a gotcha moment is people say, okay, see, so that's just what they are. <laughs> like, they're, they're slave catchers of the 21st century, which in a way, that's true. Um, but once you kind of are able to sort of follow those historical logics, you can also see that those histories are, are with us in really complicated ways that take a lot of, like, parsing in order to figure out how, how exactly the police are a racist institution, let's say, um, which is important if you're going to, like, win an argument with your aunt on Facebook. That's so important. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. These things are still with us. Uh, there's an article that came out a few days ago in In These Times, which is, I guess, a place that I like to read things from. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, it's cool. Uh, the title of the article is, In U.S. Counties Where Lynchings Were Prevalent, Police Are More Likely to Shoot Black People. Um, and this is kind of a uh, really fascinating deep dive into um, the correlation between uh, yeah counties where lynchings took place often and um now where officer involved shootings um um, of black people are now taking place Uh, anyways all all the articles really drawing out is that they're like really two they're they're similar there's a correlation between these two things right it's a it's a way of um explaining how these things are still with us that um you know the uh the outright racism or whatever of um of jim crow era of um chattel slavery and of reconstruction all these different eras right uh it kind of changes shape and changes form and it still remains with us like that type of white supremacy still remains with us but uh it just gets expressed in these sort of different these different ways and uh i guess to me the article is really powerful in just drawing that out that um you know things don't change as much as you think they do yeah that's right um, well, let's think about maybe how there's kind of like a myth of policing that uh, obscures this history, you could say. Um, and I think Vitaly is really good at, at kind of laying this out. So he talks in particular about the liberal view of police, which I think is really valuable because you can understand at an intuitive level, I think, a certain conservative view of police as law and order, as the the obvious uh, right hand of God or whatever who can never do anything wrong. They're always innocent. They're the protectors of justice. Um, or even just like broken broken windows types of ideas, right? Yes. Like they've completely saturated the culture. It's a really conservative type of like sociological viewpoint and like conservatives love it for whatever reason. Right. Um, I think that is like easy enough to kind of dispel maybe, um, you know, whatever. It's hard to get through the ideological fog, but you can like get it. <laughs> you can get why it's bizarre. Um, but the the liberal view is kind of harder because, as always, uh, the liberal takes themselves to be, you know, progressive with respect to the conservative and they're they're on the side that's moving through history. So Vitaly tries to kind of articulate this worldview in a way that I think is pretty fair and, and worth pulling out. So he says, liberals think of the police as the legitimate mechanism for using force in the interests of the whole society. For them, the state through elections and through and other democratic processes represents the general will of society as well as any system could. Those who act against those interests, therefore, should face the police. The police must maintain their public legitimacy by acting in a way that the public respects and is in keeping with the rule of law. For liberals, police reform is always a question of taking steps to restore that legitimacy. 
That is what separates the police of a liberal democracy from those of a dictatorship. Um, I think this is so useful, not only because it's ubiquitous, you can see it everywhere, all over the place, um, but it helps you to at least figure out like where liberals are coming from by trying to um, understand the myth of that society. And that also allows you to rethink how to make that history, that historical origin uh, story of police more effective, I guess, in, in dialogues with, with other folks, because you can kind of figure out, all right, um, this is where you're coming from, but this is in fact where the police have come from. Yeah. It reminds me a lot, a lot of what uh, Amaria was talking about in the article um, that we mm-hmm. talked about with her a few weeks ago, right? That there's this, uh, uh, you know, an idea of like order that is bound up in whiteness. And that's what we're seeing here too, right? That, that liberals believe that there is a certain type of order um, in the rule of law that uh, police play in it. And, you know, sometimes that order gets out of whack and we have to fix it or whatever, but there's still that order that needs to be maintained. Um, and, uh, you know, as Amaria points out, that's that's a problem, <laughs> right? <laughs> but liberals, like, uh, at least in Vitaly's view, that's like what they're all about is is maintaining uh, maintaining things as they are and just making sure that they work a little bit better than, than um, they might right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Um so he does, Vitaly does do some of that dispelling work for us already. And I think this next quote will sort of link the stuff we've just been saying about order and history. So he says, liberals, according to Naomi Morikawa, who wrote, by the way, just a, a really great book on um, the liberal view of, uh, pol- of prisons and how it has been bad and contributed to mass incarceration. Uh, liberals, he says, according to Morikawa, want to ignore the profound legacy of racism. Rather than admit the central role of slavery and Jim Crow in both producing wealth for whites and denying basic life opportunities for blacks, they prefer to focus on using a few remedial programs backed up by a robust criminal justice system to transform black people's attitudes so that they will be better able to perform competitively in the labor market. The result, however, is that black Americans start from a diminished position that makes them more likely to come into contact with the criminal justice system and to be treated more harshly by it. What is missing from this liberal approach is any critical assessment of what problems the state is asking the police to solve and whether the police are really the best suited to solve them. The reality is that the police exist primarily as a system for managing and even producing inequality by suppressing social movements and tightly managing the behaviors of poor and non-white people, those on the losing end of economic and political arrangements. So you can kind of see the link that Vitaly is drawing here, right? The, The liberal view not only ignores the history of things like uh, suppression of working people, suppression of black people, um, indigenous genocide and uh, imperialism, these kinds of threads. Um, Liberals not only ignore those things, but in a certain sense, they they inherit them and they perpetuate them through a certain kind of liberalism by thinking that that history is kind of not as effective or not as present. Um, So if we really want to address injustices, we kind of have to be able to open up critical conversations about the ongoing, um, you know, afterlives or, or hauntings or continued presence, however you want to put it of those kind of histories. Yeah, that's, um, that's a good way to put it. Um, liberalism is very confused about what it's doing. You know, on the one hand, it doesn't want to perpetuate these things, uh, but it still does because it can't kind of see past its own ideology. Well, cool. I, I think that kind of sets up, I guess the problem, uh, the problem as it exists materially and also the problem as it exists ideologically. Um, the rest of the book, man, it's good and convicting, I think, in the best ways. 
Um, so Vitaly will go on to kind of explain like what's going on with the school to prison pipeline and like resource officers and uh, mental health and homelessness and sex workers, the war on drugs, gangs, border policing, and this this really interesting chapter two on political policing, which is really fun. Um, um, you know, we can't talk through each, each single section because uh, this is a podcast, y'all, and we're not that kind of podcast. We're not a hardcore history podcast where we talk for hours. <laughs> but um, the the chapter I think I found the most fascinating to me, I don't know why, but I guess it just like struck a nerve or something, is the chapter that he has on school to prison pipeline. There's a section in it called the militarization of schools. And I want to really quickly read this thing because I read it and I was just like, holy shit, I don't know. I had a visceral reaction to it, so I thought I should <laughs> I should do it here. Uh, so Vitaly writes this, according to the Washington Post, at least 120 school affiliated police forces in 30 states have utilized the 1033 weapons transfer program. Uh, the 1033 weapons transfer program is what allows police departments to buy like the outrageously militarized, um, you know, weapons of destruction and death, like grenade launchers and uh, assault rifles and stuff. Um, anyways, then he goes on to tell this like really wild story. In 2003, administrators at Goose Creek High School in South Carolina coordinated a massive SWAT team raid of their school in an effort to ferret out drugs and guns. Armored police with guns drawn ordered hundreds of mostly black students onto the ground without any specifics, uh, without any specific probable cause as administrators went around identifying students to be searched and arrested. A video of the incident shows students freezing or fleeing in terror as black clad officers burst out of closets and stairwells screaming commands and pointing guns. Police dogs were brought in to find the drugs that supposedly necessitated the raid, but none were found. The administrator who had organized the raid apologized to parents, but pointed out that once police are on campus, they are in control, which is exactly the problem. Um, so I, I, I don't, you know, you can't take one anecdote, one story, one case study or whatever as speaking to the whole. But like this book is full of exactly those types of stories <laughs> where like, you know, the police show up and like all of a sudden all hell breaks loose because yeah. they have no idea like what they're responding to and like what the sort of right approach is because they've been trained you know minimally but when they haven't trained they've been trained in one particular way and like everything is like a raid everything is like a you know everything you need um you need a you need pepper spray for and tear gas and police dogs and you need like to yell at kids in high school which is just absolutely insane uh-huh. um but uh, i guess i just i just found it so um such a shocking story i guess but um, it's a good demonstration of the ways that police misrespond to situations. Um, yeah. And uh, and uh, it sucks. Sorry, that's all I have to say about it. that's my critical my critical <laughs> analysis. It sucks. I hate it. It's good to bring that story out, I think. Uh, and like you say, it's it's one story among so many. Um, I uh, I want to turn to one one last thing that Vitaly says, and maybe we could start talking about the Christian stuff because um, mm-hmm. we have a lot, a lot more podcasts to go. Uh, but I think what's so fascinating about that story is that it is exceptional in a certain sense. And it's in the, it's exceptional insofar as like the popular imagination of police is like people who are armed to the teeth and like breaking in and SWAT teams or whatever and like doing the dangerous, dirty work. Uh, but in fact, Vitaly uh, really emphasizes that that's not really what police do every day. You know, it's not like mm-hmm. whatever you see on Law and Order or like... Right. I don't know, 24 or something. Um, And there's a great uh, passage where he draws this out and he says, uh, felony arrests are any kind of any kind are a rarity for uniformed officers with most making no more than one a year. 
When a patrol officer actually apprehends a violent criminal in the act, it is a major moment in their career. The bulk of police officers work in patrol. They take reports, engage in random patrol, address parking and driving violations and noise complaints, issue tickets, and make misdemeanor arrests for drinking in public, possession of small amounts of drugs, or the vague disorderly conduct. Officers I've chatted on patrol describe their days as 99% boredom and 1% sheer terror, and even that 1% is a bit of an exaggeration for most officers. So I think it's important in any conversation about police abolition to also recognize the myth that we've built up around police as like mm. people who are always putting themselves in harm's way is one that we have to dismantle. Most police are doing pretty boring stuff and also stuff that I don't know why would they do it <laughs> in the first place. Uh, and just to drive the point home, there was a great chart going around not too long ago of the sort of like um, frequencies of injuries or fatalities on the job. Um, in different occupations and police are like nowhere near the top, right? Like you're more likely to be killed if you're a sanitation worker or if you're like a, a logger than you are if you're a police officer. Um, that's right. So fishermen, just, that's the most dangerous job or fishermen. Yeah, exactly. So just an important thing to sort of continue to dispel that myth of like, you know, the brave serving and protecting, like, I don't know. There, there's there's a lot more to, uh, or a lot less to policing, I guess, than uh, we like to think if we watch a lot of the movies and TV. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, in conclusion, the, the book kind of ends on this whole, kind of in the way, same way it started. Um, you know, uh, he says, every time we look to the police and prisons to solve our problems, reinforce these processes, we can't demand that police get rid of those annoying homeless people in the park or threatening young people on the corner and simultaneously call for affordable housing and youth jobs because the state is only offering uh, the former and will deny us the latter every time. Um, and he says at the very end, we should demand safety and security, but not the hands of the police. And in the end, they rarely ever provide either. And um, yeah, I mean, like that's kind of the story of the book that police are always kind of like this force that um, responds wrongly usually over over the top ways um or maybe not over the top ways are are, are not it's not the way to put it i guess the police know how to respond in one way and that's with like force right that's it and um those are always um um misaddressing the situation they're never really solving the problem um and yeah so so alex Talley thinks like so we should investigate these other more robust democratic ways of communities um kind of solving their own problems. And I think that's a pretty compelling case, actually. Mm -hmm. um, just laying it all out here, police, like, don't do what you think that they do. Um, and so I read this book, and and after I was done, I just kind of felt sort of sad about police. Not in, not, I mean, of course, they perpetuate uh, massive violence, and that's terrible, and I don't feel sad about that. I feel mad about that. But uh, those are my emotions. But I feel <laughs> sad because, like, um, it's it must be such a frustrating job to have to respond to a thousand different situations that you are not trained to respond to. Mm -hmm. Like you know, police aren't trained to handle mental health situations, but they have but they have to do it, and that must suck. That must suck to be like <laughs> just to not know, to not know what you're really doing, and to not mm -hmm. have anything to add to the situation, but you still have to show up and try to add something to the situation. And in the end, you end up just doing more harm than good. That must be an yeah. intensely frustrating situation uh, to be in. Um, I imagine that there are ways that sort of cop ideology blocks that frustration, but boy, would I feel stupid in that job. 
Yeah, I know. Well, <laughs> I don't know why I do this, but every once in a while I watch. There's like there's a show in Canada. I'm pretty sure there's one in the U.S. too, but um, there's one that I was like addicted to for masochistic reasons, I guess. And it's kind of like cops, but it's uh, Border Patrol in particular. And it's all like Canadian border patrols and mostly airports. But it literally like it's so crazy to watch. I kind of couldn't believe that it was a show because I don't know, like I've seen a handful of episodes of cops and like at least there's the excitement of a car chase every once in a while or something um like if you're watching it on tv but in the border patrol show it's just like (laughs) police officers asking somebody to come into their office and they're like i don't know the person got off an airplane and they're like extremely high and they're like sir you have marijuana in your bag and they're like oh no way i don't officer for sure i don't have marijuana in my bag and you know like, oftentimes they don't even find it, <laughs> but, like, the person <laughs> is clearly high in front of them, and there's, like, nothing they can do about it anyway, and it's also a ridiculous thing to get upset about, so they just have to, like, tell the person to leave and, like, wish them good luck, I guess, and it's the <laughs> weirdest show because it's, like, 99% of the time they pull people into an office and just have a weird conversation and then just depart. Like, that's the whole thing. And I think it's like it's a great show because uh, it does represent how extremely banal being a police officer is, even though it's supposed to be like, I don't know, giving you a a ride along perspective or something. It's very embarrassing. Right. That's very funny that they picked like the weirdest and most boring place to do a ride along. (laughs) I know. It's really bizarre. Um, All right. Well, let's transition a bit into the Christian stuff. Uh, We've talked a little bit about police, why they're from a practical perspective, not a great idea. Why from a historical perspective, you should be suspect of these kind of institutions. Um, But I think uh, there's a number of angles I've been kind of considering thinking as a Christian about abolition. And I want to share two of them. Um, The first one, I think, kind of goes along with those feelings of sympathy that you were sharing, Matt, about like, you know, why, like, there is a kind of moment of, like, why do police do these things? Like, why do we ask people to do something that they're clearly not capable of doing? Um, yeah. And I think that's, like, a good Christian question to ask. Um, and I think it leads me to say something like, if you really love police, uh, whether you love them as your enemies or you love them as your, <laughs> I don't know, people you believe are defending law and justice, if you really love police, you should actually get rid of their jobs. I think that's a good, hot Christian take that I'm going to set on the table that we could talk about. Um, I'll talk about the second one afterwards, but I think we should spend some time on that one. Yeah, I agree. It's so sad for all the different reasons that I've said, I guess. Um you know, here's another story that sticks out to me from Vitaly's book that I think kind of proves the point of the sadness. <laughs> um, so there's a section on mental health. And um, Vitaly is is kind of giving these, I, I, I think that they're, they're based on real experiences. Um, and you can imagine them because you've probably seen them unfold. But he was talking about the ways that, um, that police respond to mental health and like the places that they're um, most likely to respond to mental health. So... Vitaly's like, you know, you can imagine this, that like um, if you're in like a sort of up, upscale mall or whatever, and there's like a, uh, a person walking along who uh, is kind of smelly and they're wearing dirty clothes or whatever, and they're muttering them to themselves. Right. That is a situation that police will for sure. Um, that's a mental health situation that police will for sure um, involve themselves in. And it's not because. um 
it's not because they think this person's in danger necessarily or a danger to anyone else, but it's probably because like someone called the cops and said, listen, there's this like, there's like this like weird guy walking around or whatever. Um, and that's sad because like, first of all, they're not going to get this person help. They're going to end up probably, you know, um, I, I don't know, uh, putting him in jail or just like making them leave the mall, whichever, um, or, or worse, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of worse out- outcomes. Um, but then he says, you know, and, and the people who actually need like, um, mental health intervention, you know, the police would never end up seeing them anyways, you know, people who are depressed or suicidal or, or whatever, the police would never see them. So it's like, you know, they're addressing mental health situations completely inadequately. Um, they address them on the side of like, you know, uh, stupid business owners and not actually as mental health professionals or whatever. So I guess all that to say, it's like so sad to see people being like mistrained and misled the thinking like that's what it means to do justice in any kind of one sense. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, instead of harassing homeless people, it would be way better to not have police whatsoever. And instead, like investing that money in mental health professionals so that, that, you know, everyone gets the help that they need. Um, yeah. Right. Like you shouldn't, first of all, you don't need uh, an armed force to like harass people who don't need to be harassed. Like that's super important. And then also, mm. you just like you shouldn't have an armed force that does that. Oh God, it sucks! It sucks so bad. Yeah, I think so. Well, that leads to the the second point I wanted to put on the table, which is that another sort of Christian way into this is uh, that the oppressed are um, obviously the people we talk about on this podcast as the the sort of preferential option that God has. Right? God is more interested in the oppressed than the oppressor and takes their side, etc. Um, And I think that that is like one way into the conversation about police abolition as well. Um, You know, clearly, like if you have a liberation theology perspective, you would side more with the person getting arrested than the person who's doing the arresting in that case in like the mall or whatever. Um, But I think there is kind of a way of tying these things together, like the idea that you would love a police officer by getting rid of their job and also being for the oppressed and, and the love of the oppressed. And they come together in Paulo Ferreira, who we've talked about on this podcast before. Um, he was a Brazilian um, Christian radical Marxist educator. Uh, has a great book called Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And I want to read a, a passage that's been sticking out with me as I've been thinking about all this. So Ferreira says, uh, It is paradoxical, though it may seem, precisely in the response of the oppressed to the violence of their oppressors that a gesture of love may be found. Consciously or unconsciously, the act of rebellion by the oppressed, an act which is always or nearly always as violent as the initial violence of the oppressors, can initiate love. Whereas the violence of the oppressors prevents the oppressed from being fully human, the response of the latter to this violence is grounded in the desire to pursue the right to be human. As the oppressors dehumanize others and violate their rights, they themselves also become dehumanized. As the oppressed, fighting to be human, take away the oppressor's power to dominate and suppress, they restore to the oppressors the humanity they had lost in the exercise of oppression. It is only the oppressed who, by freeing themselves, can free their oppressors. And later on, Ferris says, only by abolishing the situation of oppression is it possible to restore the love which made that situation impossible. And, or which that situation made impossible, sorry. Uh... I think that this sort of point is really profound when we think about something like police abolition, that uh, 
it's only by um, having a rebellion against the order that the police defend and represent that you could really free the police from their own position as basically being totally dehumanized by the awful, horrible work that they do and the things that they do to other people that leaves a, a really terrible mark on them as well. Um, and I think that is like a really kind of strange Christian take that <laughs> that you might have in a situation like this that like, you know, if you're really supposed to love your enemies, and I think the police are the enemies, if you really are for the oppressed, then uh, the only way to really do that is to remove them from the opportunity to oppress people. Yeah, I think that's a really powerful take, actually. Yeah, I, I don't know. Only only after I think um, police no longer have to do those things. And like, you know, you can have a different type of society that has a an orientation towards a different type of justice that's non-punitive, uh, would anyone even really be able to understand like how utterly awful things were, <laughs> I think, you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't, you know, police abolition, uh, at least as it's shaping up right now, is sort of a set of very much like non-reformist reforms. So it's like not even like violence in sort of the revolutionary sense, but right. like, uh, but taking people, taking taking like those types of positions in our society away, um, I think is I think you know the first step towards um, a really important transformation. Not not just of the material situations, but of um, of the way that I think police understand themselves as you know human beings. A spiritual mm -hmm. revelation. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, salvation isn't always uh, the kind of thing that you imagine. I guess. Yeah. Or not the thing that you uh, thought that you needed, even. Right, you don't need you don't always need the, an altar call. Sometimes you just need someone to take your dang job right away. Yeah, that's right. Uh, well, with the last bit of this uh, podcast, I think that we can talk uh, extremely briefly about the the sort of Marxist angle on abolition and really sort of do our brand justice by pulling the Christian Marxist stuff together. Um, Marxism in abolition, we don't really have time to get into it entirely, but. Uh, maybe we could sort of put that relationship as a kind of like square and rectangle thing, right? Like um, all, uh, I don't know, maybe that's not right. <laughs> Hang on, let me back up. <laughs> let me delete delete everything I just said. <clears throat> uh -huh. Let me start over. Now I'm trying to remember what I even said before I started talking. The brand, we're bringing Christian Marxism together. Right. OK. All right. Well, maybe with the last bit of our podcast, we can really lean into the brand here by bringing the Christianity Marxist stuff together and talk a little bit about Marxism and abolition. So we've gestured toward it in a bunch of ways already. I think abolition and Marxism have kind of a complicated relationship, but not like not in a bad way, necessarily, um, just in a way that some abolitionists are a lot more Marxist than others. And some Marxists are pretty reticent about abolition. And uh, you kind of have to really like sort out those complications. Um, the way that they're really obviously connected is that so many of the luminaries in the abolitionist conversation are explicitly Marxist, although from particular traditions. So, you know, someone like Angela Davis was uh, really steeped in the Communist Party USA and then uh, later left the CPUSA, but not communism itself. Um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore is really influenced by Cedric Robinson, who we talked about with Amoria and that story of racial capitalism, etc. So like the links are already there. Um, but, uh, 
you know, not every abolitionist kind of leans into the Marxist side of things. Um, one place to start, though, is actually a really neat article that was published in uh, by the CPUSA uh, now by Jamal Rich, which is called Prison and Police Abolition, Reimagining Public Safety and Liberation. And what I love about it is that I think communists right now are struggling to figure out how to relate to the abolition movement. And this just provides like some very good uh, ways in that I think can make sense to communists who might be on the fence. Um, all right, I've introduced it, but Matt, I'm going to turn it over to you because uh, I know that you've read it as well to maybe take it away and talk us through it. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I just have like a few quotes I pulled out of it to kind of understand like what exactly Jamal Rich is getting at. Um, so I'll just read I'll read this quote and we can kind of talk through it. Yeah. So he starts off the article by saying, how did we get here? Anti-black racism and settler colonialism are built into the very foundation of our society, which gives rise to white supremacist superstructure. This means that racism and capitalism are separate but intertwined, parallel but not identical struggles that must be fought against to move towards a future built on justice. Lenin himself saw the struggle for democracy indivisibly bound up with the struggle against racism, class, national oppression, and saw the struggle as a key to advancing unity among workers and the oppressor, uh, the workers of the oppressor nation and the people of any oppressed nation or nationality. Okay, so he's setting up the problem. There are all of these problems going on uh, between race and capitalism, and uh, they're intertwined, but not identical struggles, which I really appreciate this uh, articulation of it here. That's not uh, reducing, uh, you know, every problem to capitalism. Uh, mm -hmm. I, that's always good. <laughs> That passes the Magnificast test, I think, um, <laughs> yeah. of, of not of being not those types of communists. Right. Um, so Rich goes on to say, though, um, abolition has to be understood as a process and a call to action, not some empty ultra revolutionary rhetoric. Further, to call oneself an abolitionist is to want to abolish the conditions that subject majorities of black people. We uh, this is uh, Jamal Rich speaking. We black people cannot wait for a socialist revolution or global communism to put an end to these conditions of criminalization, mass incarceration, and state violence. And that is what this current uprising against police terror is all about. In fact, Marxism insists that socialism will never be achieved unless the equality demands of black people and other people of color be addressed in the here and now. Okay, so this is another uh, good point. Um, so you can have this like sort of Marxist perspective um on on abolition it's not just like uh it's not uh ultra revolutionary rhetoric which i think is uh maybe he means like an ultra left sort of approach or something mm -hmm. um but the, the point here is that you know you can't uh we, we don't have the luxury of waiting around for for the you know the 19th century russian revolution to happen here in the united states it's not gonna mm -hmm. happen anytime soon so we have to start making these types of um moves against um the the dire and extreme forms of injustice and inequality as they, as they appear here. Um, and I think that's another idea I appreciate again, like abolitionism is, uh, is a good non-reformist reform. <laughs> and mm -hmm. um, I think that Marxists can definitely like find a lot of energy in it and they should definitely do that. Um, he, he closes out the article saying this to be a communist is to also be an abolitionist understanding that the struggles for socialism and black self-determination are parallel, but, in, but intertwined as both Lenin and Henry Winston, who is a former communist party USA chairperson noted uh, is to see that abolitionist ideas are realistic and not constrained to a socialist revolution. However, if abolitionist ideas are implemented, they can lead to the dismantling of capitalism itself. We must continue to find ways to fight racial and national oppression 
by expanding people's power and control over their communities and abolishing the prison industrial complex and the police violence that enables it to function. All right. So we have this, um, these quick quotes that I'm kind of pulling out there, trying to summarize um, the article overall. The article itself is a little bit longer and you should definitely read it. It's great. It's on the CPUSA website. Check it out. Um, but the, the sentiment is good though, right? That uh, abolition is not the same thing as Marxism, um, but it is a means that um, you can, um, you know, it's, it, it's kind of like a, a program to follow that ends up um, addressing those intertwined forms of oppression, both capitalism and racism. Uh, in a pretty compelling way, right? And and I appreciate the the sort of carefulness that Jamal Rich has here too. That like this is abolitionism is not the same thing as socialism, and that is important. Okay. Um, but you know you can um, you can follow the road of <laughs> abolition to uh, to really challenging capitalism entirely, right? And I think that's mm-hmm. kind of an exciting idea. You know. Um, well, I don't want to say anything about that, but <laughs> but uh, it's it's uh, I think abolition is a, is a really helpful tool for for Marxists, whether you're a Marxist Leninist or just a democratic socialist. I think that uh, abolition is, I think, one of the more powerful tools in the old toolbox uh, that we have at the moment. And uh, I appreciate uh, folks on the left really trying to um, get into it. Yeah. I think so, too. And it's important to recognize that prison abolition has a Marxist genealogy to it. Even the term prison industrial complex that comes from Mike Davis, the uh, legendary Marxist historian and and writer. Uh, And, you know, of course, Angela Davis, she herself, you know, she was running as the vice presidential candidate for the CPUSA in the 80s while also doing abolitionist work. So, for her, these were not contradictions. And, you know, as far as I know, anyway, the party didn't seem to be upset with her <laughs> at that time either. Um, so that's an important piece. And uh, as I've mentioned, there's all kinds of abolitionists who borrow from Marxist language. Uh, I think it's pretty clear that communism has a, a weird relationship to prisons. I mean, you know, what is the Cold War if not basically uh, the United States saying that communism is full of too many prisons and then kind of ironically outpacing <laughs> every other right. country by having way too many prisons in the United States? But nevertheless, uh, it's true that communist countries have uh, complicated histories of prisons and imprisonment and all that, too. And I think communists have to do the hard work of really thinking that through. You know, why did those institutions exist um, what does it mean to be living in a revolutionary situation and not be living in one? Uh, what are the kind of paths to revolution that we might think about? And, you know, Marx himself kind of has has room for non-reformist reforms as a way of achieving socialism, although he's not too optimistic about it. <laughs> uh, he, he begrudgingly admits that maybe <laughs> you could do it. Um, so all that to say, I think there's kind of like a lot of room to um engage abolitionism and also to allow abolitionism to sort of like inject new lifeblood into some um some communist conversations that are maybe important to have so in any case like you said matt it's a good tool in the toolbox um it's also a great point of contact between communists and what is clearly i think like one of the most important and powerful people's movements that we've seen in my whole life so we've got to figure out how to connect. Yeah, definitely. I, I don't know. Like, I, I guess to me, um, uh, at, at least this is my take right now. <laughs> and maybe I'll change my mind later. But 
abolitionism uh when it, it you know whether it's police or prison or just abolitionism writ large it, to me it seems like it is a piece missing from that that big immortal science of marxism yeah. um yeah i mean i i just find um i find it really compelling not only is it really good at addressing and kind of calling out uh the sort of situation that we're uh like that we're in sort of in the united states and other western sort of countries or i guess probably every country ever i don't know um, but, uh, I think it's really helpful, uh, reflection on just the way we think about justice. And I think that's a, that's a helpful intervention when we, uh, when we're talking about like, you know, who, how do we, how do we deal with people that we don't want to deal with? Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, punitively, that means like shuffling them away to a place we can't see them, uh, until they are less problematic for us. And I think that is, um, a helpful thing that abolition makes us confront that you know that mm-hmm. uh justice has to be more about uh just just sweeping people away um and i find that really compelling um i think that uh yeah all the leftists in the world should figure it out <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh i agree completely for sure and it's good too to you know you said it's a piece missing from the immortal science um i think uh it's good too to recognize that abolition is actually trying to think scientifically about problems in society, right? Like, totally. It's completely it, sociological, like in every yeah, sense. <laughs> exactly. It's not a utopic pie in the sky dream or whatever. Um, it is taking stock of how people actually operate. And at the end of the day, if we're serious about thinking about things like your material conditions um, shape the person that you are and different material conditions should shape different kinds of people, then we absolutely need to think about how, um, criminal justice systems, uh, you know, do or don't contribute to the real flourishing of all people. That's right. All right, so let's just get rid of the police and let's and and the people can flourish, all of them at once. <laughs> That's right. Uh, exactly. And uh, you know, Christians think that too. So we've done it. <laughs> we've really done it. We've connected all the dots here. <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon. As you know, we have revised it. So even if you already support us, maybe you want one of those very good Benjamin Lay stickers, and there's only one place to get them, uh, at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. You can find us all over the internet. We're on Twitter at The Magnificast. We have a Facebook group called The Magnificast Basement. We have an email address, themagnificast at gmail.com. Um, and that is all I have to say about that. Our music, as always, is by Amari Armstrong, and our outro is by The Illogical Spoon. See you next week. In the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up, you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early.